Welcome to the Game Changers podcast. Each week, we navigate the most important changes that affect pharmacotherapy. Plus, you can earn pharmacy and medicine CE credit. We know you're busy, so let us bring the learning to you. Click on Claim CE Credit in the show notes below. Now let's welcome your host, Jeff Wall, as he discusses this week's clinical practice game changers. Hello and welcome to Game Changers Clinical Conversations. I am your host, Jeff Wall, Professor of Pharmacy Practice at Drake University. How are things going? Hopefully you're doing okay in your neck of the woods and, and uh, with your you, your loved ones and everybody else. And we're finding ourselves hopefully slowly getting out of the, the Omicron phase of, of the pandemic and, and hopefully uh, you're, you're uh, keeping safe and doing well. So if you are a new listener uh, to Game Changers, thank you for taking the time to listen uh, to us. If you're a longtime listener, thanks for coming back. Today, we are going to kind of continue. Uh, last week, we talked a lot about the ADA guidelines and and one of the things that that they did stress of course were some of these new medications and a whole section on obesity and one of the things they talk about is some of the new medications that we've got for obesity and so I thought today would be a good day uh, to talk about a recent paper that just came out in JAMA that compared once weekly subcutaneous uh, semaglutide uh, which is of course a GLP-1 uh, agonist that is already approved for weight management in obesity and it's going to be compared to ligliratide which is also a GLP-1 agonist that is approved for weight management management as well in the United States. And so basically it is a head-to-head study of two of the GOP-1 agonists for weight loss in obese or overweight patients. Uh, and it's part of the global phase three semiglutide treatment effect in people with obesity or STEP program. So there's, I think this is step eight. And I, I, so there's multiple phase three studies that the company that makes this has, has, has basically decided to do. So this is again, kind of the step eight study. It is worth noting that I will give the company that makes the these drugs credit. It is actually the same company that makes both semaglutide and liraglutide. So it's both made by the same company. It's kind of interesting. And they did do a superiority study. So they were trying to find if in fact one drug was better than another. They didn't try a non-inferiority study where they were going to try and you know say, hey, we're just as good at lowering weight at either one. So you can take either one of our drugs, but maybe this one's a little more, more convenient because it's once weekly. No, they actually went for, for a superiority study. So I, I will give credit where credit's due on this. So this was a phase three, 68 weeks randomized open-label study. It was conducted in the United States from September 2019 to May 2021. There were a numerous inclusion exclusion criteria, and there's a couple of biggies here that I think are, are worth discussing. The inclusion, of course, uh, you had to be uh, over age 18 at the time of an informed consent. Like most of these studies, you had to have obesity, which they defined as a body mass index of greater than 30, or a body mass index of greater than 27 with the presence of one or more weight-related comorbidity, which included things like hypertension, dyslipidemia, obstructive sleep apnea, or cardiovascular disease. Now, certainly, you know, it is worth noting that the BMI in, in the last several years has come under some fire as a marker for obesity. You know, as, as I've said in previous podcasts, you know, people like Brad Pitt and George Clooney are supposedly, you know, overweight if you, if you look at their body mass index, and I would sure not mind looking like those guys. So some wonder if it is the be-all, end-all for the definition of obesity, but it is kind of what we've got right now. And it's used in a lot of other weight loss studies. So it is kind of what, what's done here. They had to have at least have one self-reported unsuccessful dietary effort to lose weight. And then their exclusion criteria was expansive. They did not want to look at diabetic patients. So you're excluded if your hemoglobin A1C was greater than 6.5. If you had a history of type 1 or type 2 diabetes, or if you were put on glucose lowering agents within 90 days before screening, if you had any sort of self-change in body weight of greater than five kilograms within 90 days of starting the study, 
study. If you were on any treatment for obesity for the 90 days prior of study or had any sort of weight loss device uh, that was planned or previous. So they did allow liposuction if performed greater than one year greater than, than screening and lap banding if the band had been removed greater than one year before screening. Uncontrolled thyroid disease, uh, because that is one of the warnings associated with the GOP-1 agonists. And so um, uncontrolled thyroid disease, which they basically said was either hyper hypothyroidism, mental health. And again, here I think is, is, is going to be a crucial exclusion criteria that we're going to have to kind of think about because you couldn't be in the study if you had a history of major depressive disorder within 12, two years before screening, a diagnosis of other severe psychiatric disorder, a lifetime history of any sort of suicidal attempt or suicidal behavior within 30 days before screening. Again, that, that's a big one because unfortunately, that is a large swath of patients who might be benefit from these medications, especially patients with schizophrenia, because again, as we know, many of the medications that we use to treat schizophrenia, one of its major side effects is, is going to be weight gain. So I understand why they did it, but it is worth noting that, that that's a pretty major exclusion criteria that I think does affect the external validity of the study. If you had a history of pancreatitis or uh, in the past six months or any history of chronic pancreatitis, or you had a history of, of someone who had multiple endocrine neoplasia, which of course is another warning with, with, with all these medications. So the design of the study is pretty interesting. Uh, you would think that the best way to do this would literally just be a, you know, an active arm study where they gave half the patients lirigotide and they gave the other half uh, semiglutide. They didn't do that. In fact, they actually did almost two separate placebo-controlled studies. So the patients were actually randomized three to one to three to one using a different block size of eight. And so in the first set of blocks, you either received semiglutide 2.4 milligrams or matching placebo, or in the other one, you received once daily subcutaneous lyriglutide or matching placebo for 68 weeks with a seven-week follow-up. And so that's kind of an, an interesting way to do that. And, and I think a good way to do that, because the only other way to, to really do that and, and keep the placebo response would be to do uh, sham injections, right? So you'd have to give like, you'd have to give like seven sham injections to the person who was receiving the semiglutide and one uh, sham injection in someone who received lyriglutide. That I suspect would make things difficult to recruit patients, might not even pass an IRB really. So I think, you know, they tried to maintain blinding as best as they possibly could given uh, uh, the differences in, in administration of, 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 the, of the two agents. And so again, yeah, active treatment groups were, were double-blinded against masking placebo to mitigate potential bias. So I, I thought that was actually pretty good. They started both of the drugs at a low dose and then escalated them slowly. Um, that's pretty common with the GLP-1 drugs, something you need to do because gastrointestinal side effects, of course, are pretty common with these medications and patients need to kind of adapt to them and kind of get used to them. And if you just hit somebody with a full dose of 2.4 of semaglutide, they're probably not going to tolerate so you need to start at that low doses and kind of and kind of work your way up over the course of 16 weeks with with, with these medications. Uh, if they had to stop the drug, they could reinitiate and try to rechallenge the patient and, and, and see if they did okay with it. In some cases that worked, in some cases it didn't. All participants, of course, received counseling every four to six weeks, how to adhere to a diet. And what they tried to do is a 500 kilocalorie deficit diet relative to a baseline estimated energy re requirement and tried to encourage physical activity at recommendations greater than 150 minutes a week. The primary endpoint was percentage change from baseline and body weight at week 68. So a nice, simple, easy, non-multiple primary endpoint. So pretty easy to, to, to look at. They had, of course, then 10,000 secondary endpoints that included percentage of patients who lost 10% or more, 15% or more, and 20% of more of their body weight by week 68. And then uh, again, a wide ranging of uh, secondary endpoints, such as change in absolute body weight, weight circumference, 
blood pressure, fasting lipid concentrations, C-reactive protein, hemoglobin A1C, fasting serum insulin, again, all the other markers that you would, would see that might get worse or hopefully get better if patients were to lose weight. They also had a safety analysis where they looked at adverse effects, including serious adverse effects, and patients who had permanent product discontinuation in, in both arms and seemed to work pretty good that way. Stats seem fairly straightforward. I mean, weight loss or, or any sort of, of stats that has some reliance on, on lifestyle modifications that can make a role. You have to kind of use, you know, pretty complex statistics. You're not going to be able to just use a chi-squared or a student's t-test. So of course they have to they have to use covariates. And so in this case, as in most of these types of studies, they, they use analysis of covariance to try and, and account for baseline weight, baseline uh, gender, other factors that kind of went into kind of a covariant analysis uh, that kind of assesses for all those things when they're doing the, the statistical analysis. I assume they would need about 126 patients in each arm to achieve the desired power of 90%. And they did do a multiple uh, imputation approach at 16 weeks. If there was any missing data, again, for all these secondary outcomes they were looking at, they were able to use that using the linear regression model. As far as the patients themselves, they overall screened 387 patients were screened, 338 were enrolled. So again, you know, even with, with the pretty wide ranging exclusion criteria, they were able to, to uh, enroll a lot of the patients they screened and half of them were randomized to semiglutide or placebo, the other half lurigotide or, or placebo. And I guess I shouldn't be so surprised by this, but, but adherence was over 90% during the study. I suppose if I was losing 20% of my body weight, I'd probably be pretty adherent as well. So the average age of patients in the study was about 50. 50% of them had a BMI of over 35. So definitely, you know, they didn't just look at overweight patients. They definitely had patients who had, you know, step two, uh, class two or class three or above obesity. About 70% of them were white. About 40% of the, the patients had some other comorbidity associated with obesity, including hypertension, dyslipidemia, and prediabetes. And a significant number of patients, as you might imagine, had all of them or multiple comorbidities. So what did they find? Well, at week 68, the estimated mean change in body weight was negative 15 0.8% for semiglutide versus negative 6.4% for lurigotide. So that was statistically significant. And actually, when you look at the total difference, it ended up being about a difference of 9.4 percentage points between the two, which was statistically significant. So let's take a second before we start talking about some of the other outcomes and think about this, that the average patient lost around 16% of their body weight. Up until the GLP-1 drugs have come out, we really have not had medications that have been able to do that. I mean, yes, certainly there are a number of medications on the market currently for obesity, and some of them are by different mechanisms and stuff. But really, until now, the average amount of weight that most people lost with most weight loss drugs on the market is somewhere in the 5 to 10% range. And in fact, if you were to lose 10% of your body weight with some of the other medications that we have for obesity, it's really considered a big win. So it's worth noting that the average amount of, of weight loss was about 16% with, with semiglutide. So I would argue, you know, a significant improvement over current weight loss uh, strategy drugs that we have on the market. Then they took a look, as, as I said, about the proportions of patients achieving, you know, 10, 15, or 20% more of their weight loss. And 71% of patients lost 10% or more of their body weight. So that's pretty impressive. 56% lost 15% or more, and almost 40% of people lost 20% or more of their body weight. So with semiglutide, uh, that compared to 25.6% of, uh, uh, of lurigotide patients losing 5% of their body weight, 12 for 
15% and six for 20%. So again, about 40% of patients in the semi-glutide arm lost 20% or more of their body weight compared to only 6% with the other active drug. And again, those numbers are quite impressive when you take a step back and think about some of the other uh, medications that are currently FDA approved for weight loss. We just don't see those numbers. We, we really don't see those numbers in, in large part. So that is definitely worth noting. When you take a look at the, the secondary outcomes, uh, they looked at numerous, numerous, numerous secondary outcomes, and almost all of them favored semiglutide over olorigotide, which again makes sense because you're losing more weight. So almost all of these patients had some sort of benefit as far as loss, a decrease in systolic blood pressure, their lipids got better, their hemoglobin A1C didn't change too much, but I'm not sure how sensitive of a marker that is to in prediabetes, it kind of went down like 0.1 or 0.2, so I'm not sure really about what, what you can take from that, but plasma insulin levels dropped, overall blood sugar rates dropped, waist circumference dropped, CRP, which again, we now know that, that obesity is an inflammatory condition, and, and that probably has something to do with some of the bad problems that it causes, that all dropped. So again, not, while not all of these numerous secondary outcomes favored semaglutide, the vast, vast majority of them did, again, reflecting the fact that you were losing more weight with, with the former drug than luriglutide. So overall, as far as safety is concerned, about 20% of patients permanently discontinued treatment. So that's worth noting. But it is also worth noting that more patients discontinued treatment with lurigotide, about 27% of patients, compared to semiglutide, only 13.5% of patients. And so is that because you have to inject yourself every day with the former medication versus every week with the latter? Or is it more side effects? They didn't really tease that out very well, I don't think, in the study. They did note that GI issues, nausea, vomiting, bloating, diarrhea, stuff like that, was more common actually with Lurilgotide compared to semiglutide. Again, one wonders if that's daily versus is versus weekly, but that's what they basically found. Gallbladder issues, because again, just losing that kind of weight uh, can certainly cause uh, gallstones to form and some cases of acute gallstones or acute gallbladder attacks in both arms, but they were fairly equal to each other. One patient in the lurilgotide arm actually developed, did develop pancreat, uh, gallstone pancreatitis, but no one in the semiglutide arm did. Those numbers are pretty small, though, so I don't know what to take up about that. So on the whole, fairly well tolerated, but it is worth noting that about one in six patients in uh, the semiglutide arm did not tolerate the drug, again, primarily for GI issues such as nausea and, and, and vomiting and, and diarrhea and stuff like that. Unfortunately, of course, uh, it is worth noting that, that both of these medications were pretty expensive. And I, I went to a couple of places and looked and it looks like if you're going to pony up cash for, for semiglutide, be prepared to pony up a lot. $1,300 a month for weekly semiglutide is, is what it looks like it's charging. So Unfortunately, unless you've got very good insurance um, or you're Bruce Wayne, who probably doesn't need to be on semiglutide, probably you're going to have a difficult time uh, affording this medication, unfortunately. So, I mean, it's going to be one of these drugs that I think everyone's going to be waiting with bated breath for uh, when, when it becomes generic and hopefully the price really plummets, but that's not going to happen for a while. So, so overall, you know, my thoughts on the study, it was a very well done uh, phase three study. As I said, I, I definitely give the, the company props. Maybe they've just decided that they're going to put all their uh, promotion uh, eggs in the semiglutide basket as, a, as opposed to their other drugs basket. That does definitely happen with drug companies when they come out with another drug that's in the same class that seems to be superior. They tend to kind of back off from, from the marketing and use of the former medication toward, this, toward the latter medication. That certainly could be what's going on here. But the bottom line is, you know, they, they did put up or shut up, as you would say, with the two drugs that are in their portfolio and found that, again, semiglutide was pretty much uh, superior in just about every measure you could think of. 
including total weight loss, the percentage of patients who had more than 20% weight loss, and even safety, it seemed to be to, to be more effective. So I mean, really, the biggest adverse effect, I think, is going to be to your pocketbook more than anything else. Unfortunately, that's a place where most of us don't want to lose weight is in our pocketbook. So that a bummer, unfortunately. But uh, you know, again, overall, a well done study. And, and I think as pharmacists, I think, you know, our job is going to be to try to, to, to see if we can help with patients who have uh, obesity or, you know, trying to lose weight and just can't do it. You know, is, is, is there a way we can help them at least even temporarily get them on the medications with patient assistance programs, things like that. And physicians and, and providers, I think, you know, many of us over the years I've seen is, you know, when you see someone who comes in obese, you try to talk to them about weight loss. They try, it doesn't work. They try, it doesn't work. And I mean, we've all, I think almost all of us have gone through that at some time where we try to make a concerted effort to lose weight. And it's just very difficult to do, as we all know. And so knowing that this is an option, knowing that's a fairly safe option, knowing that it seems to work quite well, I think just kind of keeping in, in mind, you know, if we can catch patients, I think, who are in this study, who the BMI in the study was pretty high, relatively speaking. But unfortunately, I see patients not infrequently in my hospital with BMI is above 50. Um, and while a 20% weight loss would be great in them as well, one wonders, you know, if we could if we could catch patients before they get to a BMI of 45, 50 or higher, would this tend to have, you know, a better overall effect on their health before they get diabetes, before they develop obstructive sleep apnea, before all those things occur, one wonders if the benefit would be earlier than later. And, and of course, we don't know that for sure, but I know and all patients should get a shot at this if, if they qualify, I think, but, but it's something to think about is if we can catch people earlier in the course of our trajectory of, of weight gain, maybe we, we can arrest a lot of this stuff before it really becomes a bad problem. So interesting study. And if you get a chance, please do read it. We'll put it, we'll put a link to it in the show notes as well. So that's it for this week of Game Changers. Again, uh, thanks for listening. See you next week. But remember, time flies. I don't know where it's going, but the most important day is today. Take care. Thanks for listening in. Claim your CE credit by clicking on the link in the show notes. And check out CE Impact's other education at ceimpact.com where we curate the most important information in pharmacy and medicine to deliver straight to you. Join today to connect your learning to practice.